0: Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. This is a new podcast show on the 2020 network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. From finances, education, healthcare, privacy, climate, and more, I'll be taking an in-depth look at diminishing the threats and amplifying the resilience of our businesses, our progress, and daily lives. On this inaugural episode, I sit down with Colonel Chris Hadfield, the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station, the first Canadian to walk in space, a New York Times bestselling author, YouTube sensation, and truly extraordinary Canadian. I speak with Chris about why risk is all of our business, and not just the stuff of International Space Station commanders. Thanks for joining me, Chris, and welcome to At Risk.
1: Jody, I've spent an entire life, it seems like, of uh, uh, even in some of the, even trying to be a New York Times best-selling author of of uh, being careful with risk. So and and it, at just at a personal level, it's it's a pleasure to be talking with you again. Thanks very much.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you because we just feel with our topic of risk that that you are the absolute perfect person to uh, to be kicking off our conversation. So I wanted to start with with you as as a young child. You always wanted to know. You wanted to be an astronaut. So does that mean you were born with the right stuff? Did you always know that you had it, or what? what or what? What's the situation there?
1: My wife and I have had three children, and uh, something I observed as a parent is, is that everybody's wired differently. You know, nature versus nurture. I, I think everybody, either intuitively or obviously, knows that. But but just looking at how our children behaved even before they could speak uh, is still indicative of how they may be how they now behave as fully grown adults. So, um, part of who you are is just how your particular plumbing and, and wiring. Uh, all all was, was laid down. Uh, but as far as, as what uh, Tom Wolfe and yourself called the right stuff, um, I, I was always fascinated and driven by sort of the unknown and, and things that we could maybe not do or just barely do. And I'm, I'm always intensely curious about understanding how and why things happen and how do things actually work and when you put all that together in a you know 8 year old kid and you put uh, uh, Jules Verne in his hands and Star Trek on the television in front of him and uh, 2001 a space odyssey in the theater down the street and then you actually have people getting into human made machines and leaving the planet and going all the way to try and do something as unbelievable and yet barely attainable as walking on the moon. All of that just took my my particular protoplasm and said, boy, that's what you want to do. And and so it really was a combination of, of the environment I was raised in and my particular sense of wonder, I think.
0: And you worked so hard. That just comes so much through in in your book, um, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. You you've put in so many hours and just so much intention uh, into it as well, though, right? I mean, it's not all, obviously, it's not just uh, what what you're born with.
1: It's an interesting thought in that by doing just that, but by giving yourself uh, a goal, no matter how improbable, and then starting to invest your own time in it, you are taking a risk, you know, if you said, I want to climb Mount Everest and I'm going to start working on it or I want to be a brain surgeon or I want to be the prime minister or whatever, I want to be an Olympic athlete. You're actually risking your time here on this earth uh, in pursuit of something that may never happen. And, and so you really need, I think, as, as a recognition of risk to first truly establish within yourself what is worth taking a risk for. And to me, it was hardly even a question at that age. It's like, well, of, of course I want to walk on the moon. I want to explore space. I, I'm willing to risk almost anything to be part of that, to try and do that. But, I, but then you start actually making life decisions based on it. And you're, you're, you're truly just sort of uh, risking your own sense of accomplishment, risking the path of your own life maybe in pursuit of something that's never going to happen. And so I, I, I think you can't just ignore that. So long as you can find a way to love what you're doing in pursuit of that risk, that, then maybe it lowers the overall risk. And, and I haven't regretted one day of it. I've been very lucky, you know, flown in space three times and commanded a spaceship and done spacewalks. So I've been lucky to get to largely the end of what I was dreaming about. But but I didn't hate the process. But I think it's important to acknowledge to ourselves that uh, that in, in pursuit of something, you are taking a risk with, with your own uh, 26,000 days or however many it is that we get here on this planet.
0: Yeah, I found it so interesting reading about, you know, or asking myself the question as I was reading your book about the role of purpose. And it seemed to me, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that in some ways, you're, you're, purpose, your, your, your goal for, for going into space, you know, in some ways it it changed through, through your experiences.
1: Uh, You're right. Uh, When you're um, seven years old and and you're reading a comic book, it's almost as real as the real world. You know, when I look at my five-year-old granddaughter, she lives in a very different world than I do uh, as far as her perception of what's real and what's imaginary and what's possible and what isn't. And that's natural and good and normal. And so, when I initially set myself the task of of becoming an astronaut uh, in the summer that I turned ten years old, I only had a very vague idea of, of what I was actually setting out to do, and my motivations uh, were were only very slightly altruistic you know it was just the the fantastic adventure of it and the the uh, the personal uh thrill of it and and also you know serving a higher purpose um, has always been an undercurrent. But you're right, as time has gone on, I've been more measured in, in the understanding of the risks that I've taken. And defining the the crossover of uh, actual risk versus what is true benefit has been a big part uh, of the more adult decisions that I've made. If I'm going to take this risk, what is going to be the outcome? Is this a risk worth taking is the outcome important enough to me that it's worth me risking time or money or reputation or or even flesh and blood uh, or what it does to my relationship with other people things like that. So I think you become more informed and more deliberate. Uh, but but uh, that that to be able to keep that childhood wonder as kind of one of the basic drivers of some of the biggest risks I've taken in my life has has been sort of a little personal secret delight the whole time too. And when I'm doing something publicly interesting, it's, it's fun that inside myself, I'm still a little nine-year-old boy going, wow, this is so cool. I'm getting to do this thing.
0: Yeah. Well, you described the process of returning to earth, like riding a meteorite and it was fun. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. I mean, would you like to write a meteorite? So long as it's not going to kill you. I mean, what a what a cool thing to be able to do. And flying a Soyuz, it's really hard. You know, I trained most of my life to be able to do that. Uh, especially in Russian, you know, first I had to learn all about the atmosphere and then about hypersonic aerodynamics and, and, and how you fly a blunt body through the atmosphere. What is the What's the control theory of it? And then, and then practice in so many different simulators, because it doesn't fly intuitively. Uh, You know, it's like surfing a bathtub, you know, under wicked, you know, hurricane conditions. And, and all of those things are conspiring to kill you. But, once you've figured it all out and learned the language of the vehicle, both technical and, and just uh, linguistically, to then be able to do it, to get into that machine and be orbiting the world at eight kilometers a second, and then you, along with the, the two crew members you're with, to be able to do the mechanical things to then accomplish something that otherwise would be absolutely impossible, to be surrounded by flame at 3000 degrees and and crushed down into your seat. And yet you're piloting this thing and you land it within a few hundred meters of where, uh, where your rescue crews are standing. It's, it's, uh, it's a triumph. So, so yeah, um, some risks are really worth taking and they're also just hopefully a lot of fun while they're happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So in terms of, you know, thinking I think when most people are presented with, you know, something scary or something that 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 brings with it um a level of risk of death, you know, fear and panic are are kind of the the first response. And you've talked about fear and panic really you you, you take it head on in terms of the risk risk discussion and and academics don't. Why is it why is it important to Talk about fear and panic and think about it in the context
1: of risk. Well, um, people ask me all the time, boy, uh, rocket ships, they're scary. Or, uh, you know, what was the scariest thing you ever did? Or, or boy, that, that the spacewalks must be scary. And something I've learned over the years, I think I knew it intuitively quite young because I learned to fly uh, airplanes this, this, when I was just 15, um, I think I learned back then that things aren't scary. Just sometimes people are scared and the two don't have to be the same. They're not synonymous, but we, we often blur them. We ask if things are scary. And, and so, and it it seems a little uh, contrarian to the way we normally express ourselves. So maybe a simple example helps. And, And that is, uh, Uh, I don't know, riding a bicycle, which I think most people have learned how to do. Riding a bicycle is dangerous. It it has a definite level of danger to it. Just think about it. You're, You're going to be going fast or spinning wheels. If you make a mistake, you're going to fall with enough velocity to damage yourself, break your head, break a tooth, break a leg, break an arm. There's definite measurable danger to riding a bicycle, but there's also benefit. You know, you can go fast. You can cover a lot of distance, a lot less, uh, difficulty. You know, the, your effort's way low, way lower. And, and it's exhilarating. And someone teaches us how to ride a bicycle and you learn and someone's holding the banana seat or whatever at the back and, and go put training wheels on whatever uh, until there's that magical day when you're wobbly as can be, but nobody's holding you and you're starting to master this skill. And then we're such good learners that fairly quickly you get a get the hang of it. And then by the end of the summer or whatever, you're whizzing down the, the street or the sidewalk uh, and you're starting to think maybe I could do this without even holding on with my hands. And, The key out of that is the bicycle didn't change. The danger stayed exactly the same. The the only thing that changed was your own skill. And so if someone asks you, "Uh, uh, said bicycles are scary. Well, they were at one point in your life because you had no skills. But as soon as you have gained the skills, then uh, even though the danger is the same, the fear goes away. And and a rocket ship is just a complicated bicycle, and and the greatest antidote for fear is competence, and, and so for me I have always treated everything that way, and if I start to feel those initial, what everybody knows, you know, butterflies in your stomach or the clamminess of the skin or the dryness of the throat, whatever your particular symptoms of fear are, to me I'm I become quite self analytical then and say, hmm, why am I afraid? Why is this making me afraid? probably because I don't know how to ride this bicycle. And I haven't spent the time with somebody showing me and holding on to my banana seat or or I haven't used training wheels or whatever. And is there time before the actual danger arrives that maybe I can change who I am so that I'm, I'm a bike rider by the time this danger rears its head? And that's the philosophy that I apply, not just to bicycles and rocket ships, but to everything in my life. Always trying to Uh, change my skills to be ready for the inevitability of things that otherwise would be scary. Things that have a definite level of risk to them.
0: You obviously have so many uh, impressive accomplishments, but your intentionality is what strikes me as so absolutely exceptional. And I think, as you just described in your bicycle example, it is what in part enables you to Face big risks,
1: but with a safety mindset at the same time yeah and jody that's applicable to almost everything I mean some things well very few things you can completely control, but you know everything's under a bell curve right of uh what is the highest probability thing in the middle to happen, but then there's the tails of the bell on the side where there's low probability events and you always have some finite amount of time to get ready for things to go wrong. You know, houses burn down every single day in every city in Canada. Um, so that's a known. So when is the last time you had a fire drill within your own house? You know, and, and actually go up to that little uh, thing up in the ceiling and hold the button and see if the batteries are still working. And then what does that actually sound like? And what rooms is it in? And if you're in one of the some other room, can you hear it? And when you hear it, What should you do? And what should the other people in your house do? And why don't we just, you know, take the next 15 minutes and practice that once and pretend it's two in the morning. And this is what it's going to sound like. And when I hear that noise, this is what I'm going to do. And it's a known risk. And if everybody has some idea of what to do when that alarm goes off, then they don't just have fear and and maybe the incorrect instinctive reaction on their side, but actually, oh, okay, I got a plan for if that happens. And then you can sleep better, and 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 not not worry about stuff as much, and and so, I don't know if that's intentionality or just just practical reality, but I was a test pilot before I was an astronaut, and that's an extremely dangerous job. Test pilots die all the time, and we have a very dogmatic approach. No one is a daredevil. The the movie portrayal of of fighter pilots and test pilots is 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 comically incorrect. <laughs> you know, um, Maverick and all that, you know, it, it's, uh, it is it's a very clinical, non-thrill-seeking activity. The last thing you want is adrenaline in your veins. Adrenaline is your body's last ditch effort to try and get you out of the trouble you've gotten yourself into. And And it's much better if you have very carefully looked at all the things that might go wrong, figured out what they're going to look like, and then how you're going to react to them, And and how you're going to manage to be as successful in what you're trying to do as possible, given those risks. And that—that's what test pilots do every day. It's what astronauts do uh, all the time, getting to space and back. And and the echoes of those lessons ring throughout uh, our lives, uh, you know, for thereafter.
0: I think the other thing that really struck me, you know, watching your videos and and reading reading your books, is that you you have the superior ability to uh, tease out all the, the different risks that are in front of you. And I love the example that you gave of um, finding um, a friend uh, in your helmet while you were uh, flying in formation. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about that and what was going through your mind and, and how did you make the choices that, that, that you made in terms of focus and attention?
1: Sure. I think at most, at some point in their life, most people have watched um, an, an aerobatic team, multiple airplanes, you know, like uh, the Snowbirds or the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds or the Red Arrows or somebody where there are multiple jets flying what seems to be unbelievably closely to each other and, and doing aerobatics with smoke coming out the back as as sort of a demonstration of human ability and, and something improbably beautiful. I don't know how many people when they watch that think about the the human beings inside. They're just folks, you know, just just people, uh women and and men uh just uh with their hands in the controls doing all the tiny necessary things that allow those machines to to do what we're all watching. And every single one of those people, you know, had dinner last night and maybe, you know, had their sleep interrupted and who knows, they woke up with a headache or uh, they're having trouble with their family or or who (laughs) knows, you know, they're just people. And when I was training as a military pilot relatively early on, I had to learn those skills. How do you fly in formation? It's a necessary thing. For example, if you're gonna come down through cloud you have to be able to be on somebody else 's wing in order to stay together well well you can 't see very far or or whatever there 's lots of reasons to find formation so one of the things I was doing was a four plane so if you hold up your your hand with your fingertips sticking up, you can see there your your middle finger sticks out the furthest, and then the other three there 's one on one side and two on the other. Um, if you can imagine each of those fingertips being an airplane, we call that finger four. And if you're the ring finger, then you have an airplane on one side and an airplane on the other side. And, and so you really don't have a lot of freedom of movement as the ring finger. What do you do if you sneeze? Or if if something you know you, uh, something happens that you have a momentary lapse of attention, you really have to be focused. And the instance you're referring to, Jody, I was in that position in, in a, just south of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, in our little Tudor jet, same airplane as a Snowbirds fly, and uh, I was wearing my helmet because you have to in one of those airplanes with an oxygen mask, and my visor was down, the big sort of clamshell visor that rotates down in front of my eyes, and as I was in formation looking. At my lead um, at his airplane, um, I saw an insect crawling on my visor and it was sort of uh, out of focus because I was, you know, my eyes were looking at the other airplane. But then as the insect slowly walked across, I realized, wow, that's that's a bee. That's like a big bumblebee. And and it's right there. And then I'm thinking, huh, is it on the inside or the outside of my visor? And I realized, wow, it's on the inside of my visor. It's it's just a, a centimeter from my right eyeball right now. So what do you do next? And that's really the very essence of risk, is what do you do next? And you're always constrained. And how well prepared are you for that moment? The natural reaction there would be to go ah! and flail and you know try and knock that insect away. It's what, it's what we've needed for hundreds of thousands of years because insects can, can not just hurt us, but carry bad pestilence. But I had to completely ignore my instinctive reaction because the actual threat was much higher from the airplane on my left and my right than was the bee in front of my eye. The bee hadn't done anything except exist. It wasn't stinging me and in fact when i thought about it i'm up at altitude the air's thinner the bees probably feeling pretty groggy you know doesn't have enough oxygen in its little bee body so it's just trying to hang on and figure out what's going on as well so i just Stayed in formation until we got into a stable position where we were sort of straight and level. And I said, "Hey, flight, I got to leave the formation for a minute." He said, "Okay." And I pulled up and out, and then whoop, up with my visor and trying and chase the bee around the cockpit and, and you know get get to get that threat where it was proportionate. And then once I had the the bee unfortunately deceased, um, put my visor back down and then back into formation and and continue with the training. So I, I think sometimes the hierarchy of risk and recognizing that you have to uh, put the mission and the the proportion of risk in the right order in order to have the correct reaction or, or something that will, in fact, do more harm than than what seemed to be the highest priority danger to you at that time.
0: So, As you're asking yourself the question, you know, what can kill me next? uh, Should I be focused on the bee that could sting me in the eye and blind me? Or should I obviously be focused on staying in formation so I don't endanger my own life and the lives of others? I mean, it's a lot of thinking about, you know, things that can bring about a premature end. Does it ever make you pessimistic or do you ever you know, worry about becoming a pessimist because you're thinking about all the things that can
1: go wrong? I think it's the opposite. I think um, it's like whistling past a graveyard. You know, the graveyard doesn't care and everyone's going to die. So the whistling doesn't actually help. I think all you're really sort of doing is, is clenching your gut and feeling fearful um, to something that is, unavoidable and natural. So I I, I don't like feeling afraid and, and tensed up and worried. I think that's bad for your health. I, I also think you miss what's happening when you're all super scared and worried. You're, you're so focused on uh, your own um, queasy stomach and, and uncertainty that you don't notice the beauty and, and the um, magnificence of what's going on past you. If if a graveyard terrifies you, you probably never see just how beautiful a graveyard is. You know, they're lovely manicured, and sometimes there are graves there. If there's so much history, and there are trees that have been undisturbed for centuries, and and there's often a magnificent building in a graveyard, and 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 life is like that also. So I think the acknowledgement of the actual danger is far better than a perpetual, nervous, sweaty fear of an unspoken risk or an unspoken danger. I, I You know, it, it removes stress from your life to acknowledge the risk and then gain the skills to deal with it so that you're always not just whistling past the graveyard in everything that you do. And and obviously, you can never bring any risk to zero. Everything worth doing in life has risk. That That's just a fact, you know, a learning to drive or, or uh, getting married or having a baby or whatever. Everything worth doing in life has risk. That's That just has to be accepted as a fact. And then if your job is just to, to cross your fingers and hope and sweat and and what, whatever your particular manifestation is, then um, when the actual risk danger comes along, you're not going to be any better prepared to deal with it. If instead you say, okay, and I don't know if you ever sat down and listed the, the 10 greatest existential risks to you, Jody, at this stage of your life. What are they? What are the top 10? And they don't have to be perfect, but just your estimation. And what are you going to do when each of them comes along? Um, you could just sit around and go, man, those 10 things, I'm never going to be able to sleep at night. Or you could go, okay, if this happens, this, these are the first five things I'm going to do. If this happens, those are the first five things I'm going to do. Or wow, if that happens... I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. Why don't I spend a half hour and figure out what I'm supposed to do if that happens? And then you can sleep at night or, or at least you built yourself a plan, a buffer. And you're not just, you know, that classic little nervous chihuahua who's so small and so defenseless that all they can do is shiver and yip and, and hope that, uh, that the big gigantic world, you know, doesn't do something bad to them. We're not, we're not little chihuahuas, you know, <laughs> we, we, we can do better. um
0: yeah absolutely it uh, often uh, as a personal side it's often what gets me to exercise like nine times out of ten you know I may have sat too much I may not have gotten enough sleep uh I may have had a glass of wine on a night when I when I planned not to have a glass of wine but I'm like well you know what I could beat myself up about one of those things or I could just go for a walk around the block or run around the park and now I'm doing something that's going to contribute to my health <laughs> instead of worrying about the thing that maybe didn't contribute to my health. Right.
1: Right. And and obviously, you know, the risk you're looking at is an unhealthy body leading to a painful and untimely death. And um, and so you've got to draw the balance. You can't spend your whole life doing things that are going to keep you from dying because you're going to die eventually anyway. But but you can at least make measured judgments that is a combination of extending a healthy life as long as possible and, and finding ways that are pleasant to you to, to do that. And, and something else, Joni, I want to mention is um, when you're doing these things, and maybe partially answers your previous question, try and um, find celebration in the victory of what you're doing as often as you possibly can. You know, don't don't say, hey, it, it, I'm going to exercise because I want to make it to 85. And then never feel that you've succeeded in exercise until you're 85 years old. Your 85th birthday comes along and goes, at last, all that exercise was worth it. What a horrible way to go through life. Hating exercise for 84 years in hopes that someday you're going to have 85 candles on your cake. You know, but instead, if you could say... Today for my exercise, which is good because I want to live to be 85, uh, I'm going to run around the park. And, you know, I bet you the the spring flowers are coming out or maybe there's the first dusting of snow or or the trees maybe are just about to start turning color or or I'm going to see what the ducks are up to. Um, Lower your own personal um, high jump bar of victory as low as you possibly can so, so that you can feel celebratory in 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 every single activity that you're up to. And, and I think that really helps with managing risk. Also, you don't have to hundred percent defeat a risk in order to feel good about it. You just have to felt good to have diminished the chances a little and allow yourself and nobody else cares. So, so make it a private joy, you know, but Hey, I, I, I know a little bit now about fire alarms or what to do if a tire blows out in my car and cool. I can relax a little. And, and um, I'm, 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 Celebrating myself a little for having that within me.
0: Yeah, that's that's very important. Otherwise, you can uh, kind of lose the the forest for for the trees, uh, yeah. with, with, without question. Um, so there's another kind of risk trap that I wanted to get get your take on, and that is sometimes we will have invested so much time or energy or planning or um, uh, money, even that sometimes we'll invest in money and we'll get to the, and, and we'll reach a point where, you know, maybe, maybe it was planning a big family event. Maybe it's going out on a boat and you see the storm clouds and you think, wow, you know, like I, you know, the forecast isn't, isn't very good, but you know, I've already got everybody here and the, the tank is full of gas and, you know, uh, everybody will be so disappointed if if we call the, this trip off um, but but astronauts and pilots they 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 have tools that help them resist that temptation to take on uh, perhaps a risk that 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 is too large and and i was hoping you you could you could share your insights around flight rules and and how you've used them in your life
1: sure well part of that is don't fall in love with your mission or or don't fall in love with your old life or fall in love with your plan. You know, if, if you absolutely fall in love with your plan, having to unfold in the way that it unfolded yesterday or the way it unfolded in your dreams, then you're just setting yourself up for, for disappointment. I mean, the best you can do is match it. You're not even going to be able to exceed it. So I, I think it's good to, to give yourself a plan. Hey, this is what I'm planning to do. You know, we're all going to go out in the boat and it's going to be great. And we're all going to catch big fish or we're all going to water ski or whatever. But then go, okay, well, that was just the framework. Uh, this, these were the kind of my intended things to do today. But let's see what really happens and, and let's be uh spontaneous enough to react or or let's be flexible enough to go, Hey, I didn't know that was going to happen, but it was pretty funny or, or or that was even more memorable. Um, but then what do you do when, when things are going wrong and and it's kind of overwhelming and and that's probably not going to happen, uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, unless you're having a big political rally and a bunch of boats and some of them sink, I guess. But that's probably not going to happen to extend the metaphor. But um, if you're doing something very consequential, then you have uh, a a purpose in mind. And it's really good to not only uh, have sort of a plan of how you're going to accomplish that purpose, but also when things were quiet, to have built yourself a a set of, of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, rules, you could call them. And uh, in in as a test pilot, we, we say that is plan the flight and then fly the plan. You know, this is not a time to to be exuberant and try stuff you weren't thinking about. And as an astronaut, it becomes even more strict. And we have a thing called flight rules, and it is it is a multi volume tome of books. You know, it, it is endless, endless pages of lessons learned. And a lot of them were learned in in a nice, quiet set of contemplated, very well-informed, very democratic circumstances. Like, on launch day, if this type of weather occurs, what is the right thing to do? Because on launch day, everybody just wants to launch, You know, there's thousands of people there. The rocket's full of fuel. And yeah, there's a little bit of hail, you know, down in Titusville, but yeah, it's probably okay. That's the wrong time to start thinking about the actual risk. And you need where you possibly can to have thought about it um, quietly and authoritatively in advance. Uh, And and you do it all the time without thinking when you're riding your bicycle, you know, at a certain speed, you can no longer turn the handlebars a certain amount, or you're going to crash. Everybody's learned that that's their particular set of flight rules. But the more complicated the bicycle, the, the harder it is to define how far you can turn those handlebars. And so astronauts live by flight rules. And we use them as as the go to, you know, fallback. Okay, we, we we thought about this six months ago, and we know what the limits are. And we made these decisions under very good, well-informed circumstances. So even though it's tempting to break them right now, nope, we made these rules for good reasons. Let's stick with them. And uh, and that that's one good formalized programmatic method, um, especially for a very complex, multi-part system to deal with risk.
0: A wise person who I happen to be married to always says, Plan beats no plan every time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's that's true. And he's a wise man.
0: <laughs> um, I want to talk to you um, about uh, your decision to join the board of directors of riskthinking.ai. You must receive, like, I just can't even imagine how many offers to join different initiatives, to take on different roles. Uh, but 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 you decided to take on this one. Can can you tell us about why 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 you joined that board and why why you see it as important the work?
1: Absolutely. When I look at risks right now, what are the risks to my life, to to the lives of my children and, and my granddaughter? Uh, you know, what are the right now? COVID is a big risk. You know, a, a worldwide, a, a global epidemic, a pandemic. That's obviously a measurable and, and definite historic threat to life. And you don't have to go very far back to see the horrific consequences an uncontrolled pandemic can have. But we knew about pandemics. You know, there there, there have been lots of them. It's not like it snuck up on us. We just sort of lulled ourselves into a sense of security or, or comfort. Like, hey, yesterday was okay. And the day before yesterday was okay. So today will probably be okay. and. Uh, that 's all right, so long as you 've actually said well oh yeah today 's t- tomorrow 's probably going to be okay, but if there 's a pandemic, these are our flight rules. This is what we 're going to do and and, and we 've thought about them and and that 's why we have a plan and I, you know i 'm not i 'm not the the person making up those rules. I'm not, not in government and, and I'm not at the head of a corporation that deals with those things. But each one of those heads of government or corporation needs the right tools to be able to weigh the relative merits of everything. How much energy can you spend planning for things that are going to go wrong? You know, an asteroid will eventually hit the earth another one. There have been countless ones before. When, What's the probability of the next one and what's the, what's the level of damage of it? And how prepared should we be for that thing? Or a pandemic, or nuclear war, or uh, the great caldera that is below Yosemite and Yellowstone when that next erupts, the super volcano that covers most North America in ash, which has happened in the past. These are things that are a threat to life. What's the relative probability and how ready for us for them, should we be, and what actions could we take? How can we hedge our bets? And it's been hard to do up until recently, but with the advent of of uh, computerized thinking, you know, artificial intelligence, where a computer can run scenarios with a whole bunch of variables and tell you what the results were, it suddenly gives us a really useful tool. And so I'm working with Ron Dembo, who who started Algorithmics, really smart uh, friend. Uh, professor at Yale and really good original thinker, and he he realized that there are some major global level threats like COVID that um, our decision makers need tools for, so that they can do the right things in building the flight rules and, and making decisions that hedge our bets, that optimize for whatever outcome you want. You know whether it's the health of every single Canadian or or the you know, quality of life as many people as possible around the world. And and so I, I thought, wow, this is a wonderful technological tool that allows us to then make better decisions collectively as, as a species and as a people. And so you can then apply it to all types of different things. Once you've developed this tool, you can apply it, of course, to climate change and, and just look at the uh, where I am today, the, the, there's a haze in the sky because of the fires that burn thousands of kilometers away in California. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm working with Ron at Risk Thinking AI because uh, I, I really think this is the time in history where we can use that human creation to help us make better decisions, to help better inform us, and it it it. it it uses machine learning to to dig all of the expertise that's out there, and then we just run multiple scenarios, just like I did as a test pilot, just just like you did when you are learning to ride a bicycle. You know, you tried out wobbly at first, and then you experimented further and further, um, so that then we can come up with maybe some counterintuitive actions that are actually going to be for uh, for the collective good. And, and that's yeah, you know, you're right. I get asked to do a lot of different things, but My fundamental mantra, Jody, is how can I contribute to improving the quality of life for as many people as possible in a sustainable way? That's what I apply sort of to all my decision making. And so when something like risk thinking comes along or or several of the other projects that I'm involved in, um, you know, those are the ones I try and say yes for.
0: I was so, I, you know, it, it was like a huge light bulb going off when when I was reading about your involvement with with risk thinking. You know, simulation. I, I used to work at Mount Sinai Hospital. We use simulation for surgical techniques uh, to, you know, allow trainees and and even experienced surgeons when when uh, starting with a new technique to to be able to practice and and like the simulations as you just mentioned. You know, in in all of your training there there's so much you learn a lot about yourself you learn a lot about the conditions around you um we used to do tabletop exercises at uh, at the hospital and when i read about risk thinking and thought of it on the level of you know national global public policy it was like oh, of course you know what these folks need a sandbox too and you know it the the com and, the seeming complexity of all the different factors that that are, you know, constantly happening at the same time—you know, climate change, a pandemic, the economic forces—of course, you need you need some you need some space to, you know, to experiment and and see where those choices can can take you. So, so I was thrilled to see your involvement. Yeah
1: and traditionally what we've done of course pri- prior to this incredible capability of uh, of computer thinking is we would just maybe get six experienced people and you'd call them the board of directors or the adv- company advisors or something and typically they would be men in their 50s or 60s because it's been male dominated and it takes that long to be respected for your level of experience and decision-making. So now you've got a, a subset of people who have this particular life experience, most of which is already significantly in the past, that now are trying to look at the current set of circumstances and give a recommendation to the actual person in charge of what to do next. And, and, and that's okay. But, the, the pace of change is accelerating and and the complexities have gone from you know regional to municipal to national to truly planet wide and and so taking advantage of our tools to be able to instead just going with with six you know guys like me in their sixties but instead say hey let's let's try and actually use machine learning to scrape the expertise of of the whole world on this topic and then fold that into the running of scenarios with then bell curve predicted outcomes, which ones have negative, which ones have more positive, and, and then to be able to run hundreds of those and then go, okay, based on everything we know, these are the actions that we've decided to take. It's just, it just makes so much sense as a tool. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for uh, technology, improving the quality of life uh, and trying to apply it in the best ways that we can.
0: Chris Hadfield, thank you so much for sharing your insights. They've been so valuable. You continue to serve your country and Canadians, uh, and you've already done so remarkably. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your your time and having this this wonderful opportunity to uh, to speak with you about risk.
1: Thanks, Jody. It's great that you're focusing on it, and, and that the whole the whole podcast uh, centralized theme is risk. Uh, it's something everybody needs to address at a personal, professional. And, and if you've got the energy global level, it, it affects us all. So it'd been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks.
0: Thank you.